morning. If you would join me quickly in a word of prayer before we look at God's word together. Lord, even as we sang a moment ago, I pray that by the power of the name of Jesus, you would speak into every heart this morning. By the power of the name of Jesus, you would break the strongholds in our own hearts, break the strongholds in our minds, blow us up, Lord, by the power of your mighty word. We ask for your glory and for our good. Amen. Have you ever thought that you knew what you were doing, only to find out that you didn't? I remember I must have been about 14 years old. I was much younger. Someone asked me to mop a floor. And you think you know how to mop a floor. I mean, I thought I knew how to mop a floor. It was one of those uh, um, string mops, right, with the bucket of water. It wasn't a sponge mop. And I said, I said, I thought to myself, who doesn't know how to mop a floor? Of course I know how to mop a floor. And so I told my supervisor, yeah, I know how to mop a floor. He must have doubted me because he stood by to watch for a couple of minutes. Maybe I didn't sound very confident. I did really well getting the mop wet. <laughs> and, I, and I rang it out very well. Uh, but as soon as I started pushing that mop, it became obvious I had never mopped with a mop like that before. And my supervisor lit me up. I think he was really angry because he thought I had lied to him. But it wasn't so much the lie that was my problem. It was the pride in my heart that was the problem. Yeah, maybe I lied to him a little bit. But I really thought I knew. I thought, how hard could this be? You just get it wet and push it on the floor, right? No, actually, ask me later. It's, it's pretty complicated. <clears throat> the Lord knows that I gained a little bit of humility that day. Just a little, because I'm hard to learn. I don't learn. But let me ask you a question. Do you know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, if you were listening to my story, don't be too quick to answer. Do you know what it means to follow Jesus? You know, in, in the days of Jesus... The first disciples, which we've been reading about for the past couple of weeks, even the closest of them, Peter, James, and John, if you would have asked them in those days, do you know what it means to follow Jesus? They would have told you. They said, yeah, we've been doing it for like a year and a half. We've got this. Let me tell you what's up. And they would have been 95% wrong. They would have been wrong. This ignorance of the apostles, I mean, I'm calling it ignorance. Their ignorance, and at times arrogance, it was a major theme with them. And across these chapters of Mark that we'll be looking at through Easter time, Jesus has been telling them over and over again, very plainly, very clearly, that he's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to suffer, to die, and to rise the third day. And it's just not sinking in. He's telling them plainly and repeatedly. And all they got are like visions of 
fairies and sugar plums, right? Crowns, thorn, uh, crowns, thrones, uh, kingdoms, you know, Davidic kingdom, eternal. They're thinking we're going to go in and conquer. We're going to be the champions. Peter was the first one to speak up, wasn't he? And he said, Jesus, no, you're not. We don't know what the conversation was, but we can guess. Jesus, no, you're not. We're going to win. We're going to conquer. We've got this. The people, are, the people are gathering. Just keep it up. We've got a plan. But he was wrong. And he got himself a strong rebuke. You know, the disciples were oblivious. And at worst, they were sometimes rebellious. Because of their ignorance. Here in our passage today, we get more of the same. This time it's John. And on the third time, it's going to be James and John. Notice it's Peter, James, and John that are getting the front seats here. Front seats to the glory, front seats to the shame. John this time raises an objection. And John clearly thought that he understood what it meant to follow Jesus. And John also gets a rebuke. It's just as strong as the rebuke that Peter got. It's, it's, it's a little gentler, but not any less strong. The root of their misunderstanding and resistance to Jesus' leadership, it's important for us to understand it. Why did they misunderstand? They didn't like where he was leading them. They didn't like what he was saying. And they couldn't hear it because they didn't like it. It just didn't appeal to them. They had a different plan, a different idea. And we need to be on guard against the same attitudes in ourselves. We really do. Will we assume that we know what it means to follow him? Will we persist and insist on misunderstanding and rebellion even against the leadership of Jesus in our lives? Oh, you don't think you are? You think that you know? The disciples did too. May the Lord search us this morning and know us. May he reveal to us our hearts. May he lead us to repentance where we need to repent and to greater faith where we need greater faith so that we would follow him no matter what. Beginning in... 935, we find our Lord once again patiently explaining to his disciples what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let us join him, join, join the other apostles at his feet. Let's join the company in this house in Capernaum and see if we can't learn the lessons that they were supposed to learn. Let's try to wrap our heads around what it means to follow a crucified Messiah. Verses 35 to 50 are one section. It's teaching that's given in the house of Capernaum. In verses 35 to 37, you talked about it last week. Jesus just said that if we wish to be great in his kingdom, we must become like little children. We, the, the, the greatest of all is the greatest servant of all. Now, children in those days were at the level of slaves. They were expected to just do whatever they were told. Don't argue. Don't give any lip. Corporal punishment was a thing. Just do it and shut up. But Jesus points out that not only do you have to become a child like this to be a disciple of Jesus, but there's also great dignity in being a disciple of Jesus. This is important for our understanding of this next passage. 
There's also great dignity because God identifies with his children. So that if you do good to God's children, you're doing good to God. And if you do evil to God's children, you're doing evil to God. And the flow of Jesus' teaching here then, John's interjection, I mean, the first time you read it, you're like, why is John bringing this up? Like, where's this coming from? It seems out of place. But on closer look, maybe not so much. Let's look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Apparently, they had become aware of a man who was successfully casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They don't give us a name. So he wasn't a part of the broader group of of disciples that were following him, the crowds. He wasn't certainly not one of the twelve. He's just a stranger. Apparently an unauthorized stranger, at least as far as the apostles were concerned, because Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons. He had chosen them to be his representatives. So who's this guy? Where'd he come from? What does he think he's doing? Why does John bring this up? They tried to correct him, and he didn't listen. He was like, you do what you're doing. I'm going to keep casting out demons. Why is John bothered by this? You know, maybe just here in verse uh, 37, he seized on this idea, right? Like, oh, I'm a child of God. I'm following Jesus. That means that when he's refusing to listen to me, he's refusing to listen to Jesus. Maybe John was thinking like, hey, here we go. We're going to get Jesus to help us shut this guy up. Shut down his program. Get him on the same page with us. Not so fast, John. Not so fast. Can't we see that this is none other than the same hardness of heart? Listen, it's the same hardness of heart that led them to argue about who was the greatest. It's the same thing. If they can't be greater than each other, John's thinking, like I can't be greater than Peter, but we got to be greater than this outsider. At least greater than him. He's not even following us. Who is he? This was John asking Jesus to exercise Jesus' authority through them to say, well, G- Jesus, he wanted Jesus to say, you're right, John. Let me sh- let me help. Show me who he is. That's what John wanted. You know, there's some, there's some rich irony here that I'd like to point out. Do you remember when Jesus came down the Mount of Transfiguration and, he, and his disciples were there and they had brought him uh, a boy that was demon-possessed, and they asked him to cast out the demons. Could the disciples do it? No. They couldn't do it. And now this, the, the apparently authorized and empowered disciples of Jesus, the ones that were in the in-crowd, they couldn't cast out a demon. And now there's this guy, who is he, casting out demons. He could do it. They couldn't. They're complaining that an outsider was doing what they could not. Notice also that they are reporting this after the fact. They said, oh, by the way, this just happened, and we need your help cleaning up this mess. When it was happening, when they became aware of the guy, they didn't say anything to Jesus. They assumed that's why I have presumptuous children up there. Like, like they presumed they knew. They thought. And that was maybe their first mistake. They're not getting paid to think. They're getting paid to follow. 
Instead, they just did what was right in their own eyes, like presumptuous children. You know, this reminds me of a story in the book of Numbers. Remember when the Lord gave Moses 70 elders to help bear the burden with him? And only 68 of them came, and there were two that stayed in the camp. And then when the Lord gave the elders his spirit, they all prophesied, even the two that were in the camp. They were prophesying too. And when Joshua heard of it, Joshua that was his servant, Moses' servant, he said this. Take a look at the screen. Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth. He was in the in crowd. He was, he was Moses' right-hand man. He said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. He was scandalized. But Moses said to them, said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. For whose sake was Joshua jealous? Only his own. For whose sake were these disciples of Jesus jealous? Only their own sake. You know, I was researching a church the other day. And I found a video of a pastor that was painting his shirt while he preached. He had like a black paintbrush. And I said to myself, he shouldn't do that. And I said to myself, that's a violation of the dignity of proclaiming God's word. For whose sake was I jealous? For God's? I might also add that it was a charismatic church. And I thought to myself, those charismatics always watering down God's word. For whose sake was I jealous? I might also add that it seemed to be a very large and wealthy congregation and that many people were engaged by the posts, you know, on the video. And, uh, and they looked involved and excited, and I thought to myself, you can't get big without compromise. For whose sake was I jealous? God's? I think we're going to see in a moment how Jesus corrects his disciples and how he corrects me. And if you're sitting there with the disciples right now, how he will correct you. Where do you draw your lines of exclusivity? I draw mine around expositional preaching. I prefer smaller congregations. I tend to be confrontational rather than peacemaking. And so then I talk about the peacemakers and say those compromisers. But where do you draw your lines? The disciples drew theirs around their physical closeness to Jesus. They had left everything to follow him. And then don't we place the same expectations and standards on other people? Where do you draw your lines? And what kind of lines do you draw? Political lines? Between red and blue? Denominational lines? Between Baptists and Charismatics? Or deeper between Protestants and Catholics. We are always drawing lines. We always do. What about color lines like black church, white church? You know, that's a real line. You know, I can't tell you the sin of your heart. I can only tell you the sin of mine. I'm being honest with you this morning. Be honest with yourself. We think that we are in and others are out. This is the way we function. Who is it for you? In order for, for Jesus' teaching on this to really land with us, I want to just take a moment and pray.
that the Lord would reveal to each one of us the condition of our heart and where we're drawing lines that Jesus wouldn't draw. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to every heart here. Lord, move by your spirit. Break our hearts of stone with the mighty hammer of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's see Jesus' correction now in verses 39 to 40, and let's hear it for ourselves. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. John was trying to get Jesus to help him stop the unauthorized ministry of the stranger. And Jesus said, no. And you better cut it out too. I mean, the man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Like he was saying, in the name of Jesus, demon come out. And the demon was coming out. There was a mighty work of God's power. Whose power? Whose authority? The disciples were making an assumption. And didn't Jesus say when they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan? He said, Satan can't cast, doesn't cast out Satan. It's only the power of God that casts out Satan. Jesus knew who this guy was. Jesus knew what he was doing. As a matter of fact, Ice was saying the other day that in God's sovereign providence, he arranged all these details so that they could make this mistake, so that Jesus can correct them and correct us. What are we supposed to make of this? Jesus tells us there's only two sides in this fight. Only two. How many denominations are there? Hundreds. And Jesus is saying there's only two sides. Two. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are for Jesus, fighting for Jesus, with Jesus, for his cause, and those who are against him, fighting against Jesus. Notice something. Jesus draws lines. Jesus is defining who's in and who's out here. It's not that all exclusivity is bad. There are in people and out people. What Jesus is saying is you don't get to decide who they are. Jesus is exclusive, but his exclusivity is not like ours. He draws lines according to the righteous authority of the Father. Our lines are the lines of proud and arrogant children. We want people to beat to our own drum. Jesus is calling all of us to beat to his drum. The disciples should not have presumed. They should have asked. In their arrogant ignorance, they assumed the stranger was unknown to Jesus, but Jesus knew him. In their narrowness, they thought that God's work was restricted only to their inner circles, failing to realize that God is not restricted in any way. He does as he pleases. In their jealousy, they missed the obvious power of God at work in that man's ministry, a power that they they themselves had failed to exercise. The force of Jesus' correction leads us to conclude that the stranger was an approved servant of God. This is important. He was an approved servant of God 
which means he was a child of God. This means that the stranger was one of the children of verse 35 and one of the children of verse 42. The disciples have made a very serious mistake. They have committed a dangerous sin. Going back to Joshua, his lines were organizational and authoritative, right? It was his organization, his authority. Going back to the church that I was researching, my lines were denominational and convictional. My denomination, my convictions. But Jesus never hesitates to blow up our categories, does he? He takes our pets and he puts them to death. Remember the woman at the well? The Samaritan woman, right? She said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She wasn't only a Samaritan, she was a woman. And when the disciples got back, they were amazed that he was talking to a Samaritan woman, but they didn't say anything. They, were, they knew enough not to say anything then. But what did Jesus have to say about it? Looking at verses 23 to 24. The hour is coming, Jesus said, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and and in truth, not according to man-made distinctions. Who are we to exclude anybody from the kingdom of God? Who do we think we are? Was that stranger a servant of John or of Jesus? Who do we think we are? Now we need to be clear. Jesus clearly makes a distinction between people. I mean, we're not universalists. Not everyone will be saved. Not everyone is on Jesus' side. Not even everyone who casts out demons is fighting on Jesus' side. We're not saying there are no lines. What we are saying is that Jesus is the only one with the authority to draw them. Only Jesus. So don't be more exclusive than Jesus but don't be more inclusive than Jesus either. He said earlier that the standard of discipleship is to take up a cross and follow him. What he means is a complete identification with and an imitation of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's not denominational. It's not geographical. It's not racial. This is a spiritual line. It's a line that we cannot see, but God sees it. Remember what he says in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees every human heart. He knows every secret thought. Do you think that because you gather here week by week inside of these four walls that you are a disciple of Jesus? Do you think that because you gather here and stand when people stand and sit when they sit and sing these songs that you are a disciple of Jesus? Do you think that because you sang this morning that Jesus is our hope, 
that that really means he's your hope? Jesus is looking at our hearts. He's looking at what's going on inside of you. He's the one drawing lines. We need to be mindful of what his standard is. He determines who is in and who is out. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're in. Consider the standard that Jesus gives us. Listen, I used to work in prison. And at times, part of my job was cataloging tattoos. That's the thing we do. We got to write down all these tattoos. And you know how many guys have a tattoo that says, like along their chest or something, only God can judge me. That's a popular one. It's very popular. One in ten, at least. And what they mean is that they could disregard all human opinions and that, that nobody could tell them what to do. And they lived that way. But occasionally, as I was writing these down, I would say to them, do you think he will? Not one of them ever thought about that. This morning, we are invited to think about that. Do you think God will judge you? Do you think you can hide? Jesus isn't being soft or lenient here, but he's correcting our standard by telling us his. He will be the judge, and we should pay close attention to his standards. Do you think you know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? You better figure it out. Your life is on the line. There are real consequences for anyone who disregards this. But there are also real blessings for those who will allow themselves to be corrected. And we come to a place in the passage where there are blessings and consequences. I'm going to read verses 41 and 42. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. To give a cup of water to a thirsty person, that's just basic hospitality, isn't it? It's, like, it's baseline hospitality. This hospitality is connected to what Jesus said in verse 37. To give a cup of water is to receive one of God's children. It's to support them. It's to be for them. This is the humble service that Jesus was talking about in verse 35. When he said that you need to be the last of all and the servant of all. He's saying give them a cup of water. It's concrete. This is also an illustration of verse 40. The person that is for Jesus is the one who gives a cup of water to one of his children. Because to give a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus is to give a cup of water to Jesus. Our identification with him as disciples who submit to his authority and imitate his way of life, it leads to his identification with us. This is good news. Jesus identifies with his people. That's why there's a reward here for anyone who serves them. Because to serve God's children is to serve Jesus. It's to serve God. This leads to blessings and reward, not because they've been earned, but because Jesus, God sees all acts of love to him, no matter how small, even a cup of water. God sees. God knows. He will reward. Now, some commentators 
have sought to separate verse 42 from verse 41. And your English translation might have a break between those verses. I know the ESV does. If you're looking at ESV, it has a break between those verses. But I think that those verses need to go together. I'm going to tell you why. Look at the verse 42. It says, whoever gives will be rewarded. And then verse 43 says, whoever causes will be judged. Do you see it? They go together. This is a common thing in the Bible. Blessings and curses, they go hand in hand. You're blessed if you do this, you're cursed if you do this. The object is also the same. Look at verse 42. The object is a follower of Christ. In verse 43, it's these little ones. Jesus has already established that those are the same people, right? These little ones are followers of Christ. So in contrast... To those who extend hospitality to God's children, we are given those who would cause one of God's children to stumble. There's the person who gives them a cup of water and the person who causes them to stumble. I know the ESV translates it as sin, but that's not the best translation. The Greek word means to put a stumbling block or an impediment in the way upon which another person may trip or fall. In this, in this verse, it means to offend them or to cause them to sin or to discourage them. Now, Jesus doesn't give us what the consequence is going to be. He doesn't say if you discourage or offend or cause one of these little ones to sin, then this is going to happen. But he does give us a comparison, a really scary one. Whatever the consequence might be for opposing God's children, he says you would prefer a violent death by drowning. It would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. If we consider this to be a response of John's statement, which I think it is, then Jesus is saying to him that by trying to stop this stranger from casting out demons in Jesus' name, you have placed a stumbling stone in the path of one of God's children. It would have been better for you to have a a stone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. This is Jesus rebuking John. He's saying you better check yourself before you assume next time that you know what you're talking about. We need to be careful here. In my family, we have a long history with Roman Catholicism. Brothers and sisters, there are born-again Roman Catholic people who really love Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't just start hitting them with a theology doctrine hammer. And discouraging them and making them feel like they don't belong to Christ without sitting down and having a long conversation first. This is a serious and a grave sin. They said no to a person where God had not said no. In their ignorance, they made themselves an obstacle to real faith in Jesus. They required something from a person that God did not require. This was a serious sin. What John and the other apostles had done at its core, at its root, was to usurp the authority of Jesus. Peter sought to do the same thing. Peter was like, no, you're not. Here the presenting sin was a little different, but the source is the same. Temporary, earthly glory was all they could think about. 
and the success of that stranger threatened their status. They couldn't grasp the message of the cross and they couldn't understand why rejection and suffering were necessary. Do we grasp this? Do we understand? There was a, I found this story. I, I remembered it and I, and I looked it up. Megan Vogel was a champion Division Three long-distance runner. In 2012, with about 20 meters left and a 3,200-meter race, that's like, what is that, nine miles? That's a long race. Who's, who are our, our, our uh, metric people? That's a long race, 3,200 meters. The runner in front of her collapsed right at the end. Instead of running by, Vogel stopped, assisted her to her feet, and then helped her limp across the finish line. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. Afterward, there was a big fuss, a big to-do in the media. And she said, I don't know what this is all about. Any girl on the track would have done the same for me. We could hope that would be true. I'm not so certain. What I do know is this, that for Megan Vogel to do that, she had to be willing to jeopardize her own strong finish in order to help her opponent. At that moment, she couldn't think about anything but the need of another human being. Otherwise, she wasn't stopping. How many of us would sacrifice our reputations, or anything for that matter, for the sake of those who we think are our opponents? You know, because I've softened my stance against Roman Catholicism, people in my family, they're after me. They're after me. I'm a heretic. I'm going down the slippery slope into the depths of the abyss. How about we don't draw lines where God doesn't draw lines? I'm not talking about the doctrine of that church. I will fight against Vatican Council all day. But the Vatican Council is not your neighbor. Your neighbor's your neighbor. These are people. How many of us would sacrifice for our opponents. You know, Jesus is doing more here than making a call on the ministry of a stranger. He's redrawing our battle lines. The main sphere of our final application here is in brotherly love. And if the band wants to start making your way up, you could do that. Look around you this morning. Consider the faces. I mean, really, do it. Like, look around you. Do you know, do you know each other's names? Think of each other's names. Look at the people in front of you, the people behind you. You're all still looking at me. Like, like, consider the people around you. Really do it. You may not consider any of these people your opponents, and then again, maybe you will. I mean, there's always conflict. How many of you consider the people sitting around you to be a closer relative than the people of your own household? Than your brothers and sisters? If you are disciples of Christ, you are blood. You belong to each other. We belong to each other. What lines of yours need to be redrawn by Jesus? To which of these little ones have you not given a cup of water in their time of need? Have you even been aware of their needs? Let's not make excuses. The apostles had their reasons. This guy didn't follow Jesus. He wasn't with them. Jesus isn't letting any of our excuses stand. Stop with the excuses. 
The call is to be a servant of every last person here. Practice hospitality toward the children of God. In every sense. From meal trains to dinner at your place. The people here should feel comfortable opening your fridge. Pay each other's bills. Yeah, I just touched your pocket. Pay each other's bills. Be there for each other. Sacrifice for one another. Pour out your lives for one another. Outdo each other in showing honor. Be known for your hospitality. And on the negative side, stop ignoring each other. Stop being a cause of stumbling for each other. The only thing we should hear from each other is encouragement, love, compassion, patience. No condemnation. Have you made all feel welcome regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their looks or how clean you think they are, regardless of what language they speak or what their income level appears to be? If we're guilty of these sins, if we understand what Jesus has been saying, then we should prefer a violent drowning to continuing in these errors. Oh Lord, help us. This is a call to repentance. Christ has been judged for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if we will repent. If we will turn to him and have our lines redrawn. Love those that are beloved by God. Seek their good, no matter who they may be. For in so doing, you love Jesus. Don't assume that you understand what it means to be a disciple. Only Jesus can define our discipleship. Only he can define others' discipleship. Seek for him to blow up your categories. Commit yourself to learn from him and to imitate him. Don't presume you know. We sang this morning that we are free, awake, and alive. Singing it doesn't make it true. Jesus said we must die if we will live. At this point, I would just like to take a moment and tell you that by, I was a correction officer until just two years ago. I went out to Clarence, the pastor at Fieldstone Church. The Lord is making me die out there. I'm dying out there. I'm dying to myself, to my dreams, to my thoughts. That is a place of dying. And so I invite you to Clarence with me. I'm, I'm really inviting you. I'm literally inviting you. I've gotten permission from your pastors to invite you. If you want to come out and die with me as we die with Christ so that we might also partake of his resurrection, come out to Clarence. Let's die in Clarence for the sake of Christ. You think you have life here? Just going through the motions, coming Sunday after Sunday, come on out and get a taste of death. It's hard. You know, this is a gracious warning and it's a gracious invitation and correction by Jesus. He is meek and lonely, gentle in heart. One day he will return to judge the living and the dead. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. On that day he will divide the unbelievers and the believers from one another. He will divide them. 
And any who refuse him will be cast out into hell, the unquenchable fire. That's where the text is going. The text is going right to hell, verses 43 to verses 48. You're going to see it next week. Those who refuse him are going to be cast into hell, the unquenchable fire. In that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who repent, who belong to Jesus, will enter into the reward of heaven, the reward of God, his very presence. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. Let me conclude with this warning from the book of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In due season we will reap if we do not give up. What glory. Amen. Amen.